Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in uh, for Life Church Message. Uh, before we get into our conversation today, I have to address uh, another atrocity in our society, uh, the inexplicable police brutality that resulted in the killing of George Floyd. Uh, one life is precious enough to pause and force a discussion, but the reality is there have been so many lives taken for so little reason uh, that we need to continue to have these conversations. Um, I have no explanations. I don't have any answers, and I don't mean to stand here as a middle-aged white American male and suggest that now is a time for restraint. Uh, these times do not call for restraint. These times uh, do not call for us to turn a blind eye or for some reason accept uh, these occasionally now normal circumstances as our routine. We should speak up. We need to grieve. We, we need to have conversations. There should be outrage, but these times call for wisdom and they call for discernment. Uh, we need to be wary of wide brushes and large megaphones. Uh, wide brushes, wide brushes that would paint swaths of humanity with generic, uh, stereotypical, and false identities. Uh, large megaphones that, that might have a far reach and, and may be loud, but would do little to nothing and have no benefit whatsoever. Let me just encourage all of us. Let someone tell you, let someone show you who they are before you know exactly who they are. Uh, may we remember uh, to know and embrace what we have an understanding of in our time and in our circumstance. Use wisdom in how you communicate, what you're taking in. Consider yelling at somebody, and I don't just mean face-to-face. -face. I would suggest that's not a good idea either. But yelling at somebody, posting a loud opinion on Facebook or Instagram or wherever else, yelling at someone might not be as productive as having a conversation with that same someone. And we should always remember that our greatest area of influence are the places and the spaces where we already have influence. Those pre-existing relationships, our families, teaching our kids, having some of those hard conversations, our workplaces, our communities of faith, those places in our area that we already are known. Uh, let me just pray for the family of Mr. Floyd and all those who are affected by this circumstance. Uh, Father, we just lift up to you this really unfortunate, horrible situation. We ask for your help. We ask for comfort. We thank you that you and you alone are our comforter. Uh, we pray that we would be helped in having honest and beneficial discourse. We ask for righteousness and justice. We ask for protection. And God, just guide us as we, hopefully the church, would be leaders in enveloping and instigating those conversations. We love you. We honor you. We put our hope and our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you so much for that. Let's get to our conversation as we're concluding our series, Ferocious Fight for Satisfaction, talking about uh, our ego. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 20 for our hallmark passage of Scripture. Paul writes once again, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. 
Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you these moments. Father, first and foremost, we pray for our community. Uh, God, help us in this coronavirus circumstance. We thank you that the name of Jesus is lifted high. We ask for comfort and help breakthrough. Uh, we love you. We honor you. We give you these moments as we're able to gather in this way uh, just to open up the word of God. Use this time and space to mold us, shape us, make us more into your image. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen and amen. You know, as I said, we're wrapping up our conversation today on the ferocious fight for satisfaction, which should mean by the end of this sermon, this message, we're all going to be supremely satisfied, right? I mean, only if it were that simple or if it were that easy or amazingly, more particularly, if satisfaction were that binding. Uh, reality is satisfaction is neither of those things. It's, it's neither easy nor does it hold true for very long. Shifting seasons, shifting circumstances. Over the last five weeks, we've talked about a lot of things, the core of who we are. We've talked about uh, who we are doing this thing with. We bandied about our thoughts. We talked last week about individuals and environments and how they influence the deepest recesses of our soul. And I know that we're all very impressed that I've been able to say the name Epaphroditus and breeze through it like it's my own. All that being said, I think we can safely conclude that satisfaction is complex. But even the most complex things have simple mechanics to them. Uh, you've heard me talk about my boys who love to play sports. Asa is a very accomplished basketball player. Jude uh, is a phenomenal baseball player. Uh, Jude, in particular, is a pitcher. It's one of the things that he does, and he throws off-speed pitches. Now, I throw a baseball, literally just throw it, but Jude can throw a changeup, a two-seam fastball, a four-seamer. He can also throw a curveball. The complexity of a curveball and off-speed pitch in general is something that I can't get into. But I can get into the simple conversation of, hey, Jude, make sure you keep your elbow high. Make sure the arm slot's the same. Make sure that you push down so you get more rotation. And lo and behold, the complex curveball is made better because of a simple adjustment. Even in our marriages, the reality of two becoming one, the most miraculous dying to self that we know as human beings, is layered. It's various. It is complex. I don't need to tell anybody at home who is married that marriage is complex. You know that. But if we can get to the simple mechanics within the complexity like loving somebody, like serving someone more than you serve yourself, our marriages would be in a much, much better place. Though satisfaction has all the trappings of being elusive and complex, overwhelming in complexity, really, as we've unpacked it in the scriptures, we found them revealing 
simplicity, simplicity in the midst of all the players. As we read that first verse, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Those words have come back to us time and again. Hysteresis, the Montano learning experience, and autoacarsis, that contentment and satisfaction, it is really found in defending who we are at the core. And it is the core. It's the space that I want to return to in our conversation today. I don't mean the spirit or the soul. I mean the part of us that we support and protect most of all and could honestly probably use a bit of air, a dose of reality and God's leadership to a better degree. I'm talking about our ego, our ego. Now, when I say ego, one might conjure up a different meaning than what I am trying to talk about ego like an attitude, ego like a puffed up or arrogant disposition. I'm talking about ego, the self, your self. I asked Jordan Luck, who's a therapist and one of my closest friends here at the church. He's currently studying for his PhD. I said, hey, shoot me a text. Let me know your definition of ego. And he texted me this. It's your perception of your own importance for others. Your perception of your own importance for others. This is why we support it. This is why we protect it. This is why we try and prop up our ego. Our ego is the way we see others seeing ourselves. On several occasions in my life, I have found myself vociferously defending the wrong side of a thing. Is anybody with me? This has happened when teachers come to me and talk to me about my kids and I immediately take up their side. Or when my kids come and talk to me about their teachers and I take up my kid's side. It's taken place a time or two at a baseball game when I thought a strike should have been called or at a basketball game when the foul was called, but it should have been or it shouldn't have been and it was. And here I am, I would like to say, very calm, cool, and collected, but I tend to get worked up until my wife or somebody else says, no, 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 that was the right call. No, that was how it should have gone down. The fact of the matter is, we have a tendency to launch into our perception based on our positioning. Our thoughts get in the way of our satisfaction. We've talked about that. Individuals and environments, for sure, they mess with our chances of satisfaction. But everything, I mean, everything takes a backseat to our egos in terms of making satisfaction difficult and even perhaps unattainable. I want to read a portion of a book, New Seeds of Contemplation by the Trappist monk Thomas Merton. Speaking of our ego and ourselves, he says this, A tree gives glory to God by being a tree. It is expressing an idea which is in God and which is not distinct from the essence of God. And therefore, a tree imitates God by being a tree. The more a tree is like itself, the more it's like him, God. If it tried to be like something else, which it was never intended to be, it would be less like God and therefore it would give him less glory. But what about you? What about me? Unlike the trees, it's not enough for us to be what our nature intends. It's not enough for us to be individual men. For us, holiness is more than humanity. If we are never anything but men, never anything but people, we will not be saints and we will not be able to offer to God the worship of our imitation, which is sanctity. It is true to say that for me, sanctity consists in being myself. And for you, sanctity consists in being yourself. And that, in the last analysis, your sanctity will never be mine and mine will never be yours, except in charity and grace. He continues, For me to be a saint means to be myself. 
Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and of discovering my true self. To work out our own identity in God, which the Bible calls working out our salvation, is a labor that requires sacrifice and anguish, risk and many tears. Now we're cutting to the quick, passing beyond the the facades and the forms and right into the foundation of who we are. If satisfaction is learning to deal with, properly valuing and protecting who we are at the core, we would be well served. Let me add to that. The world would be well served if we did the hard work to know truly who we are ourselves. There's this little phrase little phrase that shows up all throughout the New Testament, in particular in Paul's writing to the Philippian church that we've been reading for the last several weeks. It's in Christ or in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. That word in is translated from the original language and, which again isn't largely different from the original language, but I think we lose the scope and meaning perhaps because of its diminutive nature. It's a preposition. N is a preposition just like in. If you're wondering why I'm going down this grammar road, just, just stay with me for a minute. A prepositions are a class of words that express spatial or temporal relationship where things are based on position. Like this sentence, I'll pay that. Okay, let's, let's move around different prepositions. I'll pay that for you. Come on, we can, get a, we, we can get a vision for that. I'll pay that after you. It changes the meaning of the sentence. I'll pay that before you. I'll pay that with you. You change the position, how it is relating to, and all of a sudden the whole meaning becomes something altogether different. But before I go too far and completely lose you in this grammar lesson, let's bring it back to our God and our satisfaction. Contentment and satisfaction has way less to do with what we're reaching out for and way more to do with what we are reaching from. Creation's language for satisfaction seems to start with acquisition. We want to know what we can get, what we need more of. Creator's language for the same seems to start with proper positioning. How you see yourself being seen by others can cause you to act, to do, to be. Certain ways that perhaps may not fit who you actually are. Another quotation from Merton. In order to become myself, I must cease to be what I always thought I wanted to be. And in order to find myself, I must go out of myself. In order to live, I have to die. Therefore, there is only one problem on which all my existence, my peace, my happiness depend, to discover myself in discovering God. If I find him, I will find myself. And if I find my true self, I will find him. David Benner, author of The Gift of Being Yourself, writes this, The self God persistently loves is not my prettied up pretend self, but my actual self, the real me. But master of delusion that I am, I have trouble penetrating my web of self-deception and know this real me. I continually confuse it with some ideal that I wish I were, the ego. There's an interesting passage of scripture that I've come back to time and again in my own life, Psalm 42, because I think it houses the hostility I feel between my ego, my perception of how I am seen by others, and who I really am. The psalmist writes this, As a deer pants flowing for flowing streams, 
So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That tends to be ache from my own self. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember. As I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And we see this dynamic start to come to the forefront, this self and this perceived self, or this ego. Elsewhere, Paul writes about it in the, to the letter to the Romans. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How are there two separate eyes? Because there's a self, and then there's the false self. There's this ego. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Is Paul trying to pawn off the responsibility of the wrong action? No, that ego is starting to come to the surface. And Jesus deals with that in the same way he calls Zacchaeus down from the tree. The same way he tells the woman who's caught in the midst of adultery, go and sin no more. The same way that Jesus speaks to the woman who's lonely, been made lonely and wretched by the disorder in Mark chapter 5, he calls her daughter and he heals her. Jesus offers people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to lose what they're holding on to or rather what is holding on to them. And Jesus doesn't just change what people are reaching for. He changes the position from which they are doing the reaching. One more passage of scripture for you in Matthew chapter 14 or 24. What is it? No, it's 16. I was wrong on both counts. There are times to charm, right church? He writes this or says this. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his, his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Church, we would be well served to begin to deal with that false self, that ego, that perception of what we see in ourselves. Allow the Creator to continue to form and shape the creation that is you. Hey, we love you so much. Want to give an opportunity for you. If anybody wants to begin that relationship with Jesus, just pray this simple prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. Give him an opportunity to shape and form, to stop you from trying to shape and form who you are. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, we're so grateful for the opportunity to come alongside you, but we, we need to connect with you. So go to our website, lifechurchvirginia.com, or uh, click on any link and get in touch with us, or email me personally, Christoph at lifechurchvirginia.com, because that prayer, uh, letting Jesus into your life and choosing to follow Him, is a wonderful decision. But there are so many more decisions that we would love to come alongside you and serve you in. Uh, let me leave you all with this benediction. May we hand our ego over to God and receive in return the gift of ourselves. May our searches for satisfaction, our frustrations with substantive lack or emotional suffering culminate in a proper valuing and defending of who we are. And may we remember that with Jesus, it only gets better. Hey, we love you so much. We'll see you next week.